Welcome to a Voices of Esalen Archive Edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today we're pleased to introduce a new segment where we dive deep into the history of the Institute in order to focus on a lecture previously recorded here at Esalen. Today our subject is Terence McKenna and his talk entitled Tryptamine Hallucinogen Consciousness, recorded in December of 1982. For those unfamiliar with his body of work, Terence McKenna was an American ethnobotanist, author, lecturer, and widely respected psychonaut, known internationally for his work with shamanism, metaphysics, consciousness, and of course, psychedelics. He's the author of The Invisible Landscape, The Archaic Revival, Food of the Gods, and True Hallucinations. His playful yet highly powerful mode of intellectual inquiry around the topic of plant medicines made him a well-loved and highly respected countercultural figure. While Timothy Leary, Ken Kesey, and Ram Dass were better known in psychedelic circles for their pioneering and often rebellious leadership during the first psychedelic wave of the 1960s, McKenna rose to prominence later, first enjoying notoriety during the 1980s. One of the stops on his lecture circuit was Big Sur in the Esalen Institute, where he lectured nearly 100 times on subjects as diverse as dynamics of hyperspace, reflections on Eros, our cyber-spiritual future, and biotech and nanofungal futures. He's a genius and thus easy to love and always a good listen. And because I'm far from an expert on McKenna, I decided to check in with my friend, the author and environmentalist, Alan Bediner, who's also the convener of the recent Psychedelic Integration Conference here at the Esalen Institute. Bediner knew Terence McKenna very intimately and thus was able to shed some light on the man behind the message. I've interspersed the original McKenna talk with my interview with Alan. You will know when one ends and the other begins when you hear this sound. So with no further ado, here's Terence McKenna's 1982 lecture, Tryptamine Hallucinogen Consciousness with Intermittent Commentary by Alan Bediner. I want to call your attention this morning to a very circumscribed place in organic nature that has, I think, an implication for what's been discussed here, uh, not in the general sense of the, some of the theories that we've heard, but in uh, the more particular and experiential sense. <clears throat> and that area is... Uh, a family of hallucinogenic drugs that are have not been mentioned particularly, which are the tryptophan-derived hallucinogens, uh, dimethyltryptamine, psilocybin, and uh, a hybrid drug, which is an aboriginal drug used in the rainforests of South America called ayahuasca, which is dimethyltryptamine but made orally active by being taken in the presence of a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And the reason it seems to me appropriate to talk about these drugs in a conference devoted not only to consciousness where its appropriateness is obvious but devoted to quantum physics is because uh, it's my interpretation that the major quantum mechanical phenomenon that we all experience aside from life itself uh, is dream and hallucination because uh, these states at least in the restricted sense that I'm using it take place when the large amounts of uh, radiation of various sorts that are conveyed into the body by the senses are restricted and instead we see interior 
images, interior processes which are mental. And uh, these things definitely arise at the quantum mechanical level. Uh, it's been shown by John Smithies and others that there are quantum mechanical correlates to hallucinogenesis of one, of one atom. In other words, a compound will be inactive and one atom is moved on the ring and then the compound becomes highly active. To me, this is a, uh, a perfect proof of the dynamic linkage at the formative level between matter, quantum mechanically described, and mind as experienced. So far what I've said is true generally of hallucinogens and of the, uh, the anesthetics that John is interested in and of other drugs and experiences as well. In other words, ordeals, dieting, this sort of thing can elicit, can elicit hallucination. But what makes this tryptamine family of drugs interesting is the intensity of the hallucination and the a concentration in the visual cortex of the activity so that uh, there is an immense vividness to these interiorized landscapes. It is as if information was being presented three-dimensionally and fourth-dimensionally deployed as light, as surfaces which have information coded into them. And when you confront these dimensions, the, the dynamic relationship that uh, is evolved is one of you relating to it, trying to decode what it is saying. Thank you so much for joining us on Voices of Esalen today. My pleasure. Thank you. I had just come back from a year in India looking to break new ground and discover new possibilities. And a friend of mine was the owner of a newspaper called uh, the LA Weekly. And I had a column, a weekly column called Mind and Spirit uh, for almost two years. And I wrote about everything from... Thich Nhat Hanh to neuro-linguistic programming to Anthony Robbins. I mean, it was just a real mix of things. Any, any, anything on the psychology mind beat. Uh, and I had to do it with a bit of humor uh, because that's the L.A. Weekly style. Yes, Terrence was the next on my list to interview for Mind and Spirit. At that time, I was not interested in psychedelics at all. I was actively disinterested. He saw me as a challenge. You know, uh, he called me an armchair Buddhist. You know, he said, <laughs> he said, you've got to, you've got to drink the Dharma, you know, and uh, he, he's such a character um, and so engaging and so bright and funny. And eventually he won me over and I, I just decided, OK, I'm going to try psilocybin. This phenomenon is uh, not new. People have been talking to gods and demons for millennia. In fact, people have been talking to gods and demons for far more of human history than they have not. It is only the conceit 
of post-industrial societies, science and technology, that allows us to even propound some of the questions that uh, we take to be so important. For instance, the, the question of contact with extraterrestrials is uh, a complete red herring because it is hedged about with a number of assumptions which a moment's reflection will tell you are completely false. In other words, the search for uh, a radio signal from an extraterrestrial source is probably as culture-bound an assumption as to search the galaxy for a good Italian restaurant. <laughs> that is just uh, not going to happen. And yet, this has been ruled as the means by which it is going to happen. Meanwhile, people all over the world, psychics, shaman, mystics, schizophrenics, are, their heads are filled with information, but it has been ruled a priori uh, irrelevant, incoherent, or mad, only uh, that which is consensually validated through these certain instrumentalities will be accepted as a signal. The other problem is that we are actually so inundated by these signals from these other dimensions that there is a great deal of noise in the circuit. This is what I would say to John if he were here, that uh, it is no great accomplishment to hear a voice in the head. The accomplishment is to make sure that it's telling you the truth. <laughs> because um, the demons are of many kinds. Some are made of ions, some of mind. The ones of ketamine, you'll find, stutter often and are blind. All right. And of all the others, I might say as well, it is not that you kneel in genuflection before a god because you will be like Dorothy before Oz. There is no dignity in the universe unless you meet these things uh, on your feet. And that means that you have an I-thou relationship and you say, okay, well, you say you're omniscient, omnipresent, or you say you're from Zeta Reticuli, or you say, you say you're long on talk, but what can you show me? And uh, magicians, people who invoke these things, have always understood that you go into it with your wits about you. Sure enough, Terrence and his shroom stepped into my life, and I was very happy about that. Then he set his sights on getting me into ayahuasca. At that time, I mean, nobody even knew what that meant. It, it was called yahe. When was this? Uh, this was in 84, hmm? something like that, 84, 85. And, I, you know, he invited me to go to Hawaii, and I went there with my, uh, she was my girlfriend at the time, she became my wife. And Terrence... Um, prepared it. He was like a, a witch sitting in a big, you know, a big tub and he was sitting there stirring. Well, we're going to do a giant journey today. Uh, in that great nasal voice of his and his wit, it's just, uh, so compelling. So I drank the stuff and, uh, 
it was it was most unpleasant actually so thick and lugubrious and just kind of just overwhelming and and sort of a nasty kind of taste to it it wasn't i didn't enjoy that very much but his idea of taking ayahuasca was you know, not what people think of now, where you're, you know, held in a circle, you're singing songs, you're, you know, and you're taking a decent dose and not an overwhelming dose. Yeah. I did it all differently. Middle of the night, alone in a tent in the jungle with probably a severe overdose. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it was it, it ran the gamut. It was a it was a crazy trip. It had all the highs and lows. And uh, meanwhile, it was terrifying. It was like a it was like a four and a half hour shamanic death journey. And uh, it, I store it, or it stays in my consciousness on on the edge on the periphery of my field of consciousness uh, always there waiting to weigh in on things sometimes you know it's it's really interesting it, it is like an alien presence um and like I'll, I'll have this situation and then i'll i'll access the ayahuasca perspective you know it'll just i'll just think again about it while i'm thinking about the ayahuasca and how i felt on that journey and what happened on that journey and just just put them together and see if anything comes up sometimes it does well what does it all this have to do with this family of drugs that i was talking about simply this that this family of drugs has been overlooked whenever you psilocybin is the one that most people have some experience with psilocybin legally and uh, in people's assumptions about it is lumped with lsd we say psilocybin lsd masculine da, 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 da. it is uh, each one of these things is a phenomenologically defined universe unto itself and uh, Psilocybin and DMT, although DMT is more intense and briefer in its action, these things invoke the logos, which means they work directly on the language centers so that the important uh, aspect of the experience is the dialogue. And as soon as you discover this about psilocybin, about tryptamines, you have to decide whether or not to enter into the dialogue to try and make sense of the incoming signal. And uh, this is what I've done. I don't call myself a scientist. I call myself an explorer because the area that I'm looking at, there is not enough data to dream of a science. We're at the stage where people map one river and indicate other rivers flowed into it, but they didn't ascend those rivers, and so nothing is known about that. And this Baconian collecting of data with no assumptions about what it has yielded, what it will yield, has pushed me to a number of conclusions that uh, I didn't anticipate. I, uh, maybe by chronologically going through it, I can explain to you what I mean. And describing these trips raises all of the issues. I first took DMT in 1965, and a friend of mine came to me with this substance. How many of you have smoked DMT? It's by injection. By injection. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, it's surprising so few have because we live in a society that is absolutely obsessed with sensation. Every kind of thing you can imagine, every therapy, every drug, every sexual configuration, all forms of media overload, all of these things are adored in this society. And yet here is something that actually uh, hedonists that we are, pursuers of the bizarre that we are, this thing uh, is too much. Or at least, as they say in Spanish, bastante. It's enough. It's so much enough that it's too much. Um, you smoke it, and it comes on in about 15 seconds you essentially fall back unconscious, your eyes are closed, and you hear a sound like ripping cellophane, like someone crumbling up a saran wrap or something like that and throwing it away. A friend of mine says, this is your radio entelechy ripping out of the organic matrix. And you hear a tone, one of these ascending, this kind of thing. And then there is the normal hallucinogenic drug modality which is a shifting geometric surface of migrating and uh, changing colored forms and then th you come up against this it's like the <clears throat> well there must be some analogy in the at the site of activity all the bond sites are being occupied and you're actually seeing the state begin to come into being over a period of about 30 seconds and then you are in a place which is uh, well I haven't taken all drugs I think if someone tells you they've taken every drug you know they're confessing they're a dilettante it's uh, much better to lean hard on a few but I've taken most of the ones that would reflect or give uh, uh, a measure against this experience. And you find yourself in a space. Uh, it has a feeling of being underground or somehow insulated and domed. It's what in Finnegan's Wake is called the merry-go-round from the German word Raum for space. And you actually, the room is going around. And in that space... You feel, and Amit brushed this this morning, you feel like a child. You feel that you have come out somewhere in eternity. And it always reminds me of the 53rd uh, fragment of Heraclitus, which is the aeon is a child at play with colored balls. And you not only become the aeon at play with colored balls, but there are entities which are, in my book, The Invisible Landscape, I describe them as uh, self-transforming machine elves. But, and this is sort of what they are. They're um, dynamically contorting topological modules that are somehow distinct from the surrounding background, which is itself undergoing this continuous transformation. They all, I always think of the scene in... Um, the Wizard of Oz, after the house knocks the witch down and she's in Munchkin land and the head of the Munchkins comes with a scroll and they all have very squeaky voices and they sing a little song about, you are absolutely and completely dead. <laughs> and they're marching around her. <laughs> 
So the munchkins come, these hyperdimensional machine elf entities, and they bathe you in love, which is spelled L-U-V. It's a kind of... Um, well, it's not erotic and it's not heartful, but it sure feels good. <laughs> and what they are saying is, don't be alarmed, remember, and do what we are doing. What was the state of psychedelics? This talk is from 1982. I'm curious about what the state of psychedelics was uh, at that time and how whether Esalen was a place to talk about an edgy topic like that. Oh, definitely was a, a place to talk about it. Um, it. They tried very hard to be not a place where they would where people would do it. It was definitely a place you could talk about it. Uh, that was one of the great things about Esalen. There were conversations held there on topics that were held nowhere else. I mean. It, was, it had the excellent stamp of uh, you know, authenticity and uh, uniqueness. And uh, Terrence fit right in with that. What, what, the thing that I was most amazed about is how heartful and compassionate he was, actually. I mean, he has that sort of style of that you might think he wasn't so concerned about others maybe, but he was, and he had a very, I, I remember distinctly, this, this really uh, made a mark on my mind that there was always somebody in the workshop that was, you know, liked the sound of their voice and wanted to put down the leader to be seen as, you know, and, and he was so skilled with ha how he handled them. Instead of giving them disapproval, he gave them more respect. Instead of uh, giving them a sense that they weren't welcome, he went out of his way to make them feel included. So it was, it was just, it was masterful. And I thought it was, I learned a lot from that, from watching him uh, deal with his detractors. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting. Now, another, and one of the interesting characteristics of DMT, and another reason that I would prefer it over something like ketamine, with ketamine, you are not afraid. You go unafraid. I think one of the interesting things about judging a drug is to see how eager people are to do it the second time. If they're eager to do it the second time, it's probably not worth bothering about because what is necessary to have validity in these experiences is uh, the terror. The terror is the stamp of validity on the experience because it means, you know, this is real. We are in the balance and uh, in these states with these tryptamine drugs, we read the literature, we know what the maximum doses are, the LD50, this and that. But so great is one's faith in mind that when you are out there, you know that the rules of pharmacology do not really apply and that control of existence on the plane is a matter of decision and luck and the roll of the dice. With ketamine, you don't get this. I'm wondering if John Lilly was a presenter at this this weekend. Yeah, I'm rolling my eyes because uh, I um, 
I was, yeah, as I mentioned, the weekly our the weekly column. I was going to do one on John Lilly. Fortuitously, I got an invite to come to his Malibu house for a party, and I thought, oh, great, you know, and then I'll just make a plan with him there. And uh, I couldn't find him. He wasn't in the. It was nowhere to be found. There were all these psychedelic luminaries all hanging around and partying and drinking and smoking and whatever else, but no sign of Lily at all. So I asked a couple of people, I said, isn't John Lily here at his party? Oh yeah, he's here. And then somebody told me how to find him. Just go to that door over there and, you know, go in there or wait to somebody else to go in there and then you can follow them in there. So that's what I did. And there he was lying in state uh, on his, in his bed, uh, eyes closed, not moving, almost like he was dead. And there was all these people in there whispering and talking and carrying on. And, and, but Lily was not really there. I mean, he was in some other place. So I was looking at this guy and recognized my, my facial expressions that I was confused. And he said, he's time traveling. And, and, I, and I looked at this guy and I looked at Lily and I wasted no time traveling out of there. <laughs> I thought this is not to be, you know, um, a pre this is, I'm not here. I don't want to do this. And, uh, well, I already walked in the door with my, with issues about ketamine. I was not, you know, easy to win over in terms of drugs anyway, but, uh, Ketamine, particularly, I saw nothing but the negative side of that. So they are reassuring you, these little entities, and saying, don't worry, don't worry, do this, look at this. Meanwhile, you are completely there. Your ego is intact. Your fear reflexes are intact. You are not fuzzed out at all. And consequently, your reaction is this. You know, and it persists and it persists and you breathe and it persists and they're saying, you know, don't, don't get some loop of wonder going that quenches your ability to understand. Just try not to be so amazed. Try to hang in and look at what we're doing. And what they're doing is um, emitting sounds like music, like language, and these sounds uh, pass, as Philo Judeus said that the Logos would when it became perfect, pass from being heard without ever going over a quantized uh, moment of distinction into things beheld. And so what you, you hear and behold a language of alien meaning, which is taking place right in front of you, and it is conveying alien uh, information, which cannot be Englished. Now, being a monkey, there is a, there is a kind of uh, cognitive dissonance that is set up in your hind brain when you encounter an un-Englishable object because you try to pour mind over it and it just sheds it like water off a duck's back and then you try again and you are looking at it and this cognitive dissonance this wow or flutter that is building off this object uh, causes wonder or awe awe at the brink of terror so you have to keep controlling that and the way to control it is to do what they're telling you to do which is do what we are doing and then you begin to experiment with your voice and uh, 
I've, uh, a phenomenon is possible. And uh, by the way, I give this lecture in this way to invite the, the attention of experimentalists, whether they be shaman or laboratory people or tank people or whatever, because I'm telling you, there's something going on in this, uh, with these drugs that is uh, not part of the normal spectrum of hallucinogenic drug experience as it's uh, known to be. So you begin, you begin uh, this glossolalia-like phenomenon, although it isn't classical glossolalia, which has been studied. In classical glossolalia, pools of saliva 18 inches across have been measured on the floors of these South American churches after these, uh, where people have been kneeling. And people always ask, after the glossolalia has happened, they turn to the people next to them and say, did I do it? Did I do it? Did I speak in tongues? This isn't like that. This is simply a brain state which allows a, either the assembly language which lies behind language or a primal language of the sort that Robert Graves was talking about in The White Goddess or a, a Kabbalistic language of the sort that is described in the Zohar, a primitive primal proto-Urshbach that comes out of you and you discover you can make the extraterrestrial objects, the feeling-toned, meaning-toned, three-dimensional rotating complexes of light and color and transformation. And you feel like a child, and you are playing with colored balls. You have become the aeon. So this happened to me 20 seconds after I did this drug uh, on this day in 1965, and I was uh, appalled. <laughs> I mean, I thought that I had my ontological categories intact, and I had taken LSD, and it just it was all going forward. And this thing came upon me like a bolt from the blue, and I came down. And I said, and I said it many times while I was coming down, I cannot believe it. This is impossible. This is completely impossible. Because it was not, you know, that I was kneeling at the feet of some Rishi or Roshi or Geshe or one of those guys. It was not that it was, there was a declension of gnosis. It was that, friends, right here and now, one quanta away, there is raging a universe of active uh, intelligence that is transhuman, hyperdimensional, and extremely alien. So Terrence and I stayed friends, even though, you know, I was mad at him for overdosing me. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we stayed very, very much in, as I said, I went to um, just about every workshop that he led at Esalen. And even when it, there was repetition or stuff I already knew, he's so engaging and presents it in such a lively way that, uh, and humorous way that that I didn't mind at all hearing the same things over and over again. 
the god that John Lilly talks to, that they play these games with about moral values and setting the constraints of the universe, is not like this god at all. The chief thing about the god of tryptamine, if, if we can use that, I call it the logos. That's what I think it is. And I make no judgments about it. I constantly engage it in dialogue, saying, you know, well, what are you? Are you some kind of diffuse consciousness which is in the ecosystem of the earth are you uh, and the problem with it is that it is just full of answers to these questions <laughs> you know it's it, it's the the true history of the galaxy over the last four and a half billion years is uh, trivial to it and it can show you you know you can tune these images and of course the question always is independent validation or at least for a time for me the question was but as I attended more and more conferences like this and realized that the structure of the Western intellectual enterprise is so flimsy at the center that apparently no one knows anything. I became less uh, reluctant to talk about these experiences because they are experiences. Uh, they are primary datum for being. It is, uh, this is uh, not remote. And yet it is so unspeakably bizarre that it casts into doubt all of man's historical assumptions. And any of you who are familiar with the books I've written, I've entertained various ideas about it. When we first discovered the mushroom in South America, and uh, it does these same things that DMT does, al although it builds up over an hour and is sustained for a couple of hours and then comes down. But there is the same confrontation with an alien intelligence and um, these extremely bizarre, un-Englishable information complexes and the hint the hint that's, that these drugs suggest that there is something that you can do with your body that you have never done, that no one has ever done, and that yet once it is done, it will be so obvious that it will fall uh, right into the mainstream of cultural evolution. And I suggest that uh, language either is the shadow of what I'm talking about or that what I'm talking about is a further extension of language. Perhaps, uh, you know, I mean, perhaps a language, a human language is possible where there actually the intent of meaning is beheld in three-dimensional space. If this can happen on DMT, it means it is at least under some circumstances accessible to human beings. Well, given 10,000 years and a high-pressure technology looking at that, does anyone doubt for a moment that it could become uh, just a cultural convenience in the same way that mathematics has become a cultural convenience or language has become a cultural convenience. But anyway, in confrontation with this organized intellecti on the other side, I, many theories were elaborated. Uh, the theory that we wrote about in the book on psilocybin that teaches you how to grow it was uh, that it was in fact an extraterrestrial. 
that in fact the physical body of the mushroom was the flesh of a species that did not evolve on Earth. That uh, and it, it it said this. It had a whole rap. It said yes. Well, once a culture takes control of its has complete understanding of its genetic. Uh, information, it re-engineers itself for survival. And our version of that <clears throat> is a mycelial network strategy when in contact with a planetary surface and a spore dispersion strategy uh, in terms of as a means of, of radiating throughout the galaxy. And uh, though I am troubled with how freely Bell's non-locality theorem is thrown around. Nevertheless, my friends on the other side do seem to be in possession of a, a huge body of information drawn from the history of the galaxy. About his interest in extraterrestrials, this is also something that I wasn't I wasn't aware of, but I'm listening to this talk, and mm -hmm. it seems that he's somehow implied that the intelligence in the mushroom perhaps could come from another planet. Yeah, well, he referred a lot to these different compounds as alien beings in their own right, and I just thought that was an interesting sort of uh, handle for it. It didn't speak to me. I wasn't particularly interested in aliens. Um, I, I felt like an alien <laughs> in a lot of my life, you know, I didn't, uh, go out seeking them. And, um, he had different ways of engaging people that, uh, and they all worked some for different people than others, but, uh, I'm just trying to apprehend it for myself. Do you think that he was using it more as metaphor, um, as a, as a point of entry? I think so. I think that's 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 very uh, plausible, yeah. And also as a jumping-off point for more humor, people think of Terence. They, they often think of you know of someone who's very witty and very um, engaging and interesting. But he's also incredibly heartful. He was also a really deeply um, tender human being. So that's that's a side of him that that a lot of people did not immediately discern. My friends on the other side do seem to be in possession of a, a huge body of information drawn from the history of the galaxy. And they say that there is nothing unusual about this, that man's conceptions of uh, organized intelligence and the dispersion of life in the galaxy and this sort of thing are just hopelessly culture-bound and that the galaxy has been a, uh, an organized system for billions of years and that, and that life evolves under so many different regimens of temperature and pressure that uh, searching for an extraterrestrial who will sit down and have a conversation with you is like searching for a good Italian restaurant out in the galaxy. The main problem with extraterrestrials is to recognize them because time is so vast and evolutionary strategies so varied and environments so varied that uh, the trick is to know the context is being made at all. The mushroom, uh, if you can believe what it says in one of its moods, is a symbiote. 
and it desires symbiosis with the human species. It achieved it early uh, by associating itself with the domesticated cattle that people keep. In other words, like the plants man grows and the animals he uh, husbands, the mushroom sought to inculcate it in itself into that family because it's very clear that where human genes go, those genes will be carried. It's the old develop uh, burrs so you can attach yourself to the fur of an animal and it will carry you with it wherever it goes. The mushroom, by being domesticated by human beings, has become a part of the human family. But this is all just beginning. In terms, speaking for a moment in terms of the classic mushroom cults uh, in Mexico, they were destroyed by the coming of the conquest. The the Franciscans had an absolute monopoly on theophagia, which is eating God. And when they came upon these people calling a mushroom Tiananacatl, the flesh of the gods, they set to work. The Inquisition were able to push this thing into the mountains of Oaxaca so that it only survived in a few villages until Valentina and Gordon Lawson went in the 1950s and found it there. And I, the metaphor I like uh, for that, another metaphor, you see, you balance these explanations. Now I'm going to sound like I don't think it's an extraterrestrial. It may be, it may not be. It may be what I've come recently to suspect is that the human soul is so alienated from us in our present culture that uh, we treat it as an extraterrestrial. The most alien thing in the cosmos is uh, the human soul. He's so far out, and, he, and he's, yet he's so grounded mm-hmm. in his own particular kind of genius. I'm curious if you know much about his upbringing and his, his academic... Um, yeah, a little bit. He, was, uh, he studied um, botany, uh, plant biology, he was he was actually very expert in those areas. He went on a journey that lasted over a year to the Amazon with his brother. Fascinating book, most of which is impossible to read, called The Invisible Landscape, uh, which goes into that, and that was that was amazing. And he also studied art and art history. He was particularly fond of Buddhist art, so as a consequence, he knew quite a bit about Buddhism. He, he was actually more informed than most people about uh, the uh, essentials of Buddhism. That's why these movies like E.T. or even Alien, uh, those guys could come tomorrow and uh, the DMT trance is weirder and holds more promise for... Uh, for information for the human future. Uh, it, is, it is that intense a kind of thing. But what I was saying was um, they burned the mushroom cult. They forced it into repression. They burned the libraries of Greece at an earlier period. They dispersed the ancient knowledge. They shattered the stellar and astrological machinery that had been built and by they, I mean the Greco 
Hellenistic Christian Judaic tradition. And they build a triumph of mechanism. They realize the alchemical dreams of the 15th and 16th century and the 20th century with the transformation of elements, the discovery of uh, gene transplant and this kind of thing. But then, having conquered the new world, having driven its people into cultural fragmentation and diaspora, in the mountains of Mexico, they came upon the, the body of Osiris, the condensed body of Eros, where it had retreated at the coming of the Christos. And this thing is now unleashed. If any of you read uh, Phil K. Dick's, one of his last novels, Valus, where he talks about, uh, about the Logos, how it went into the ground. It was a creature of pure information, and it went into the ground at Nag Hammadi, at the burying of the Chenoboskian Library in 270. But it was information, and it existed there until 1947. And then the texts were translated, people read them, and as soon as people had the information in their minds, the symbiote came alive, because it is a thing of pure information. And this is the same sort of thing thing. The mushroom consciousness is the consciousness of the other, both in hyperspace, which means in dream and in the drug trance, at the quantum foundation of being, and in the human future and after death. And all of these places, which were thought to be discrete and separate parts, are seen to be part of a single continuum. The, what history is, is the dash over 10 to 15,000 years from monkeyhood to flying saucer without ripping the envelope of the species so badly that the birth, that the birth is aborted and, uh, and uh, fails and we remain in physes. And uh, history essentially then is the shockwave of eschatology. Something is at the end of time and it is casting an enormous shadow over human becoming and it is drawing all human becoming toward it so that all the wars of history, the philosophies, the rapes, the pillaging, the migrations, the cities, the civilizations, all of this is occupying a microsecond of geological, planetary, and uh, galactic time as the monkeys react to the symbiote which is in the environment, which is feeding the information from the true about the historical situation in the galaxy and it is not <clears throat> I don't belong to the school of people who say well we couldn't have done it if they hadn't taught us writing and that sort of thing this they came from the stars and taught us to measure rap what I'm saying is I hope something much more profound than that it's that as nervous systems evolve to higher and higher levels, they become more and more to understand the true situation in which they are embedded. And the true situation in which we are embedded is an organism, an organization of active intelligence that is on a galactic scale. And uh, science may be culture-bound, 
Mathematics may be culture-bound. People can argue about these things, but no one knows because we have never dealt with an alien mathematics or an alien culture except in this limited area that is ruled out of bounds by the guardians of the truth. In other words, shamanic experience, drug experience, this is ruled out of bounds. And it is because it is the source of novelty, the cutting edge of the ingression of the novel into the plenum of being is happening there. I mean, think about it for a moment. If the human mind does not loom large in the history, in the coming history of the human race, then what is to become of us? Listening to this, I was struck by you have within the psychedelic community kind of a dearth of people who can describe or comment upon the the experience because in a way it's something that defies words. Mm -hmm. So only the very few mm -hmm. can make a, a, a valuable contribution to it. He was one it. of them. He was definitely one of them. Yeah. And I'm wondering, what, what was it about him or the angle that he took that made what he said useful, interesting? Well, he was brilliant. And he had a sense of humor that was just over the top. He was so funny. And he downplayed it, and he in a sort of wry way. But it was hysterical. And, you know, you, you, there's nothing that takes somebody, puts somebody in your control better than like a really amazing sense of humor. Uh -huh. And you want to follow every word. You want to hear him talk endlessly. The people who worry about getting the epistemological and ontological bases of these things nailed down say that the mathematics is in good order. What the problem is, is that the mathematics does not map well into English or any other natural language. And so people have violent disagreements in English when they are completely in agreement over the mathematical foundation of it. So I am saying uh, we are at the beginning of human thought. This is uh, the birth crisis of intelligence. And intelligence is something which is moving through the higher primates now at greater and greater speed. We know that there were primate species that were not human that chipped tools and made fire and drilled beads. So uh, the question, are we unique? It has already been answered by the physical anthropologists. Uh, there have been other intelligent monkeys walking this planet. We exterminated them, and so now we are unique. But uh, what is loose on this planet is language self-replicating information systems. Uh, it may be a further rarification or a further hypothetization of what is happening in DNA. In other words, learning, coding, templating, recoding, testing, retesting, recoding. It may be, and the immune system does that too, it may be an extension of that or it may be a quality of an entirely different order. But whatever it is, it is in the monkeys now and moving through them and moving out their hands and into the techni with which we have surrounded ourselves. 
the end state that this pushes toward and the, and the tryptamine state seems to me to be in that sense transtemporal. It is an anticipation of the future. It's, it's <clears throat> as though uh, Plato's metaphor were true. Plato said time is the moving image of eternity. The tryptamine state is as though you step out of the moving image and into eternity, into the nunc stands, the standing now, the standing waveform of Thomas Aquinas and, and in the modern parlance of holographic transforms. Uh, and in that state, then, all of human history is seen to lead toward this culminating moment. And I take the acceleration that we see in the processes around us, the fact that fire 50,000 years ago or whatever it was, language 35,000, whatever, then measurement 5,000, then Galileo 400, then Heisenberg. And what is obviously happening is that everything is being drawn together. The description our physicists are giving us of the universe, which is that it lasted billions of years, will last billions of years, is a dualistic conception, a, an inductive projection that is very unsophisticated when it comes to the nature of consciousness and uh, language. What Ahmet has gotten at in this conference, that, that, the, that consciousness collapses the state vector and causes the stuff to undergo what Whitehead called the formality of actually occurring, is the beginning of the understanding of the centrality of man. We have been on a decentralizing bender for 500 years, getting, saying that, you know, no, the earth is not the center of the universe, man is not the beloved of God, moving ourselves out toward the edge of the galaxy. The fact is that the densest organizational material in the universe is the human cortex and the densest uh, and richest experience in the in the universe is the experience you're having right now everything in the cosmos should be constellated outward from the perceiving self that is the primary datum and the perceiving self under the influence of these drugs gives information that uh, is totally at variance with the models that we inherit in this society. Did it appear to you that he had vast notes or he had, he had a kind of thing memorized or was he more sort of improvising with general ideas? He was improvising with very, very specific and powerful ideas, mm -hmm. yeah. And then he would riff off of that and that was the thing that was so amazing about him, how he could just riff and just go on and on and speak so eloquently and so powerfully uh, and so funny at the same time, you know, and he had all of those talents and it was uh, it was just you could I, I never got sick of it. Even when I heard it 10 times, there was always something different. It hit me slightly differently each time. But uh, he was a total master. How regular were Terence's appearances at Esalen? I think he was three times a year, two or three times a year. Yeah. He used to come and stay here a couple of days, either before or after. And we'd, we'd take the, the beach trail that goes all along to 
and climb up the kukui grass and climb over the fence into the baths, scaring everybody that was there, of course. And, um, but it, he was such a character and so much fun. He loved Esalen. He loved what it stood for. He loved that, uh, that there was a place like Esalen in his life and in the life of, the, of this generation. And uh, it was really important to him. His gigs at Esalen were, were the most important things to him. So what I'm saying is, uh, first of all, that this dimension exists. Second of all, on one level, it ain't no big deal. People have been into this for millennia. It's just that we are so grotesquely alienated and taken out of what life is about that to us it comes as a revelation because uh, the closest we can get to it is to try and feel in some dilettante-esque mode uh, the power of myth or something, you know, and it's this grasping after and it's very over-intellectualized sort of process. Well, <clears throat> I see it's noon. Uh, they say if you don't strike oil in half an hour, you should stop boring. <laughs> Let me see if there's anything to sum up about this. I think you're stuck in half a minute. <laughs> the two things, the two things that I want to leave you with is, first of all. Uh, Always in these kind of discussions where you present yourself as an explorer and not a scientist, yada, yada, it's always that uh, testimonials are what's being given. I do not believe that I am unique, because if I believed that I were unique, none of my conclusions would have any meaning because they would be uh, of worth only to me. So everything I've described this morning has got to be more or less a part of the human condition, meaning, of course, maybe I have some facility for it, maybe somebody else, it's very difficult to achieve, but it is, uh, it is part of the human condition. When I first smoked the DMT, I was an art history major. And I have a very, uh, you know, thorough, for a non-professional, thorough knowledge of art history and, and religious art in particular. And what blew me away was that there is nothing, and I was a union, very much into that, and there was no clue, no clue that these places exist and I could not understand that. I said, well, you know, surely art is about carrying images out of the other, from the logos to the world, drawing ideas down into matter. Why is art, human art history so devoid of what I experienced so totally? And uh, I don't really know the answer to that. Uh, the alienness is very important. And I think, uh, I haven't spoken at all today about flying saucers, or, or only by implication, but this is a favorite subject of mine, because I think the, the flying saucer is the central motif to be understood in order to get a handle on reality here and now. We are alienated. 
so alienated that the self appears to, it must disguise itself as an extraterrestrial in order to not alarm us with the truly bizarre dimensions that it encompasses. And if any of you saw the movie E.T., the whole point of that movie was for to get the kid and the audience and everybody jacked around to the place where the kid, with tears of joy streaming down his face, could look out into the cool of the purple evening and say, E.T., I love you. And uh, this is a great thing. It is a healing of the... Uh, psychic discontinuity that we have been on since at least the 16th century, possibly earlier. Uh, the testimony that I want to give today is that uh, magic is alive in hyperspace and you don't have to believe me or follow me or uh, do anything to validate that except form a relationship with these uh, plant drugs. And uh, that's the first time I think I've used the word plant. But that for me is the defining characteristic. Remember my little ditty about the demons that are of many kinds, made of ions, made of mind. There is some surety that you are dealing with a creature of integrity if you deal with a plant. But the creatures born in the demonic artifice of laboratories have to be dealt with very, very carefully. Wow. Okay, so that reminds me of another thing about Terrence. He could wax on uh, and you would be caught with maybe every other word struggling to keep up with him. And, and it didn't matter because he had a, the way he presented it. Yeah. You kind of got it. You yeah. kind of got the gestalt of yes. it. And, uh, and then you'd go back, you could look for more detail and uh, a deeper understanding. But you got the gist of it, just listening to the way he packaged these words together. It was, he's a master. Yeah. He was well on his way to being one of the greats, you know. I mean, I think of him as one of the greats, but had he been around longer, it would be, you know, unarguable. Was he kind of a countercultural icon or hero in the vein, because he is now, mm -hmm. but at the time, was he uh, along the kind of lines of like a Tim Leary or um, Richard Alpert? Was he revered among the youth or was he sort of a, a figure that's outside of that? Well, with Terrence, it was like a little of both. He was already becoming kind of an underground star. And at the same time, you know, he, he was taken seriously by uh, quite a few people, actually, even though he, he on the outside, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you could find things to just be terribly amused by uh, with him. But uh, but he wasn't like a star quite yet because he hasn't wasn't that well known. Although he was getting well known. You spoke about the environment and psychedelics at the recent psychedelic integration conference. Mm -hmm. Did Terence have a focus on ecology? Because when I think about uh, the teachings of Leary or. Even Ramdas, the, the nature doesn't seem to come up. Yeah, it definitely came up with Terence. He was talking about the ecological crisis, and he termed it in that. In those, he put it in those terms. Are you anticipating the emergence of a Buddhist psychedelic culture? I asked him. He said, "No, it's a Buddhist psychedelic green feminist culture." I always felt that Buddhism, ecological thinking, psychedelic thinking, and feminism are the four parts of a solution. 
You might want to mention that uh, DMT is manufactured in the human brain, but yes. sub-threshold doses. I could have talked about all of that, that DMT is an endogenous hallucinogen, that psilocybin is 4-phosphoroloxy and dimethyltryptamine, that serotonin, which is the major neurotransmitter running your brain found in all life, found most in man, is 5-hydroxytryptamine. The very fact that you can smoke DMT, and I don't know if I mentioned, but it takes five minutes. You do it, it comes on in 45 seconds, it lasts three minutes, you come down in two, that's it. The very fact that that can happen means that your brain is absolutely at home with this compound. It just says, oh, I know what this is. I know how to de-alkylate, de-animate, you know, and it does it. Where a drug like LSD, it clings, it hangs around. Ketamine as well. Ketamine as well. And I, my, and if I could say one more thing, just a cautionary note, because I always feel odd telling people, you know, verify this thing, it's out there, and the means is the drug. Uh, people should be very careful. I said earlier in this talk that I was addressing experimentalists, psychologists, psychiatrists. I don't mean to scare anyone off, but you should build up to it. These are bizarre dimensions of extraordinary power and beauty, and uh, I don't believe there's any set rule for acquiring power to not be overwhelmed, but I think moving carefully, reflecting a great deal, always trying to map it back on the history of the race and the philosophical and religious accomplishments of the species. This should always be done. Uh, I, if John were here, I would uh, get a debate going with him. Uh, all drugs are dangerous. All drugs uh, at sufficient doses or repeated over a sufficient amount of time, uh, there are risks. The possibility of kindling epileptic effects is well known in ketamine. There's a stack of literature on that. If anybody is intending to do ketamine who hasn't done it, the first place you go when you're going to take a new drug is the library. You know, read through, you know, all this stuff. Uh, can I ask you um, a couple of questions? Sure. Are most intriguing to me. Uh, the comment that interested me most is that you said that the terror in the drug experience is very essential, and it is better to use the aspect of terror as knowing that you are into the real thing than drugs which gave into these pleasure trips uh, where you are never sure. And what is your question? That, that is the question. Could you elucidate this a little bit? Why do you talk think that Talk about the terror? Or talk about the terror and also why do you think well, that uh, I'm not switched uh, otherwise? I'm not saying that there is something intrinsically good about terror. I'm saying that granted the situation, if you are not terrified, then you must be uh, somewhat un in contact with the full dynamics of the situation. In Terence's speech, he says the terror is the stamp of the experience. Yeah, the terror is a signal of intensity. It's, uh, it's, it's like a complete 
the terror comes when you are fighting it or resisting it, but it's overwhelming you and you can't. And, it's, and then it becomes even more terrifying because you can't control it at all. I think, I, you know, I, I have at times compared it to another batshit crazy thing I did of jumping out of an airplane at 12,000 feet. Supposedly, the marketing angle is that you'll never, you'll never be ever as frightened as you were then, and you'll, you'll have broken through the whole threshold of fear, and you'll be fearless the rest of your life, you know. But it definitely, it definitely uh, did for a while make me feel like I could do anything, you know, and I felt very empowered uh, on all levels. Uh, having done that, but uh, I mean the, the jumping out of the plane. With ayahuasca, I'm told by my now ex-wife that I definitely had uh, self-adjusted uh, with, that, with that experience in a way that really pleased her and made me feel good, better about myself. You became a kinder, gentler bediener. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, more interested in others uh, than I was before. What do you think his legacy is in terms of what, what he left? What kind of thinking uh, about psychedelics did, um, did Terrence help be born? He definitely brought a, a strong message about the importance of psychedelics as a tool to think for yourself, to be an explorer and be, and be brave, which you, you have to kind of be to go into deep internal, you know, <laughs> scouring around. You've got to be uh, brave. Well, Alan Bediner, thanks so much for talking with us today about Terrence McKenna. My pleasure. The mushroom said, and I'm sure you'll be horrified at this, <laughs> the mushroom said to me in the Amazon when they were revealing all this information and, and deputizing us to do all these things, that we said, why us? <laughs> Why should we be, you know, the ambassador of an alien species into human culture? And they said, because you have never believed anybody, because you have never uh, given over uh, your belief to anyone, and this is somehow necessary. So I... Uh, the sect of the phoenix, the cult of this experience, is perhaps millennia old, but it has not yet been brought to light where the threads may run. The drug, uh, the history of drug taking on this planet is fairly well understood. Mushroom taking was confined to the central isthmus of Mexico, supposedly, the kind of mushrooms I'm talking about, not Amanita muscaria, which is a different issue and a different compound. But psilocybin was restricted to central Mexico until the Spanish conquest. The Strophoria cubensis, which is the mushroom we wrote our book about, has not is not known to be inculcated into a shamanic rite anywhere in the world. DMT is used in the Amazon and has been for millennia, but by cultures so primitive, not I mean the most primitive cultures use these DMT drugs. The Amazon is a world where you go nowhere except on a, on water. Rivers are everything. Yet there are people who have not who shun boats don't build them, don't have them, think it's a passing thing, not here to stay. <laughs> and they are in to these hallucinogens. I am baffled, and I am baffled by what I call uh, the black hole effect. 
which seems to surround DMT. You know, a black hole uh, is a curvature of space such that not only light can't leave it, but no signal can leave it. Therefore, no information can leave it. And uh, whether this is true in practice of spinning black holes and yada yada, but as a metaphor, think of it that way. DMT is like an intellectual black hole in that once you know about it, it's very hard to, for anyone to understand you when you're talking about it. <laughs> they don't hear you. And the more you are able to articulate what it is, the less they are able to understand. And this is why I think uh, people who are enlightened, if we may for a moment co-map these two things, are silent. They're silent because you can't understand them. And uh, why this thing has not been looked at by scientists, by thrill seekers, uh, by anybody, I am not sure. But I recommend it to your attention. And uh, I believe we didn't even touch on uh, the human future that the psychedelic state implies. But the future is bound to be psychedelic because the future belongs to the mind. And we are just beginning to push the buttons on the mind. And once we take a serious engineering approach to this, we're going to discover, you know, the plasticity, the mutability, the eternality uh, of the mind. And I believe release it from the monkey. My vision of the final human future is that what history is about in engineering terms is an effort to uh, exteriorize the soul and in interiorize the body so that the exterior soul exists as a uh, superconducting lens of translinguistic matter generated out of the forehead of each of us at a critical juncture, our, our psychedelic bar mitzvah, as it were. And that from that point on, you are eternal. And somewhere in the solid state matrix of the translinguistic lens that you have become, your body image exists as a holographic wave transform. And you are at play in the fields of the Lord, you live in Elysium, uh, Versailles in the morning, and uh, <laughs> so that's it. That's it. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Lori Putnam, and Shannon Hudson. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. You can also find all of our podcasts archived at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. 